Our scripture this morning is from Matthew chapter 25, beginning at the 14th verse. Hear the word of God. Jesus is speaking, and he says, For it is as if a man going on a journey summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. And the one who had received the five talents went off at once and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had two talents made two more talents. But the one who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. And then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents. See, I have made five more talents. The master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy servant. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one with two talents also came forward, saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents. See, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy servant. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And then the one who had received the one talent also came forward, saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master replied, You wicked and lazy slave, You knew, did you, that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I did not scatter? Then you have ought to have invested my money at least with the bankers, and on my return I would have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one with the ten talents. To all those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. And as for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping, and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. By your grace and through your mercy, we pray, O Lord, that you will allow these words to come to point to the word just read and to the word made flesh in Jesus the Christ. For we pray this in his name. Amen. David McCullough, in his great biography on John Adams, paints a wonderfully vivid picture of the lives of the men and women who were a part of the great American Revolution. Ordinary people who realized they were living in an extraordinary time and responded in extraordinary ways to orchestrate the great American experiment. John Adams, in particular, was a brilliant lawyer, had a great mind for the law, But so did hundreds of his fellow countrymen, and like his compatriots, Adams had a choice as to what he was going to do with his knowledge, the gift that he had for the law. How was he going to apply it? The easy choice was to establish himself as a local Boston barrister, provide well for his family, and sequester his great mind within the provincial matters about him. But Adams understood that he was living in an extraordinary time. It was the middle of the 18th century in the American colonies, and the cause for independence was afoot. 
And with that cause came a decision, a choice, as to what lawyers like himself would, give, would do. Would they give themselves over to the cause, or would they stand back as idle observers? Adams wrote to his wife, We live, my dear soul, in an age of trial. What will be the consequence, I know not. Abigail, his wife, later wrote back to her husband, You cannot be... I know, nor do I wish to see you an inactive spectator. We have too many high-sounding words, she concluded, and too few actions that correspond with them. We live in an age of trial. We live in an extraordinary times. And the question that confronted the Adamses is the question that confronts really every generation. The question that confronts this generation is, what are we going to do about this time? Never send, wrote the cleric John Donne, never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tells for thee. There comes a time when the movement is afoot and the cause is right and people have to decide whether they are content with high-sounding words or whether they wish to pursue the actions that correspond with them. John Adams left his Boston lawyer's office and took to his post and a nation was born. Perhaps you remember that great scene in Shakespeare's Julius Caesar where Brutus tries to enlist the support of Cassius in his plot to overthrow the government and he refers to the gravitational pull, the tides, the swell of the seas and says, there is a tide in the affairs of men which taken at the flood leads on to fortune. Omitted all the voyages of their life is bound in shallows and in miseries. On such a full sea are we now afloat and we must take the current when it serves or lose our ventures. Last week, Lori pointed us to the great words of Ecclesiastes that reminds us that to everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And you cannot make it through the litany of those great verses without realizing that for you and me, it is never a question of whether we're living in a pregnant time. For the children of God, the time is always pregnant The kingdom is always on the verge of being born. The Spirit of God is always on the move. We must take the current where it serves or lose our ventures. I suppose it is what Jesus had in the back of his mind when he told the story of the three servants to whom the master entrusts portions of his fortune. Each servant gets a different amount of talent. Each gets something Each gets a certain amount of giftedness to do with whatever he chooses. One five, another two, and the other one. And we know the story well enough to know that the first two servants decide that they're going to take what they have and seize the moment of their custodianship and figure that this is the time that has been given to them. Who knows how long they're going to have it? Who knows whether they'll ever have the chance again? So why not take what time we have and use what we have and invest it? Take the risk and invest and see whether we can make money for the master. And that's what they do. The third servant wonders, is now really the time? Wonders if maybe there might be a safer time. Wonders if really it's worth the risk. 
and he buries the cash. Unused money is better than no money at all, he says to himself. I have to tell you that I am conservative enough that I kind of like this guy. At least he knew for sure what he was going to have when the master came back. That is, if he could remember where that hole was that he buried it in. So the master returns, and the five-talent servant produces ten talents. And the two-talent servant produces four talents. And the one-talent person produces his one sure bet talent, the buried talent. And when the one-talent person produces his one sure bet, one talent, he says this, I was afraid. I was afraid. The time was now, the tide was high, the current was serving, the bell was tolling, but I was afraid. The time was ripe, but instead I buried the dough and I bolted the door, locked myself into the cell of my own fear. That's what fear does, right? It captures us, locks us away, takes what we have and it buries it, plays it safe, avoids the risk of things going the wrong way. It stifles the very gifts we've been given. The time was now but I was afraid. And we've all been there. Maybe you're there right now. You are a human being. This is fact. You are a human being created in the image of God, and you are endowed with great gifts. You may not necessarily think that about yourself, but I'm here to tell you it's a fact. You are a human being created in the image of God, and you are endowed with great gifts. And those gifts could be one or several of a million things. You're good with numbers. You're really good at watercolor. You're a good listener. You are a voracious reader. You're good with people. You know how to make money. You love to sing. You're good with animals. You're a born leader. You're good in the kitchen. You're good in the wood shop. You are created in the image of God, and you are endowed with great gifts. Maybe there's a chance you've locked yourself away, though. Maybe there's a chance that you have gotten to a point where you're afraid to try anymore. Maybe you think you don't have it anymore. Maybe you're worried that if you try, you'll be disappointed or you won't be appreciated. Maybe you're afraid that if I jump in, I won't tread water. Maybe you're ashamed of something. Maybe you don't think you have anything to give. Maybe you don't want to get hurt. And maybe it's just comfortable hanging out in the cell. In Ken Kesey's great novel, One Flew or the Cuckoo's Nest, we viewed the movie a couple weeks ago in our series on God in Hollywood. It tells the story of R.P. McMurphy, whose criminality lands him in a psychiatric hospital for observation. He is there by court order, beyond his will, and he spends the whole story as a patient trying to escape the confines of the psychiatric imprisonment. And on top of it, he's trying to lead his fellow patients to join him in breaking free 
only to discover at the end of the story that each of the other patients is there of their own volition. They're there voluntarily, imprisoned. The only thing keeping them from freedom is themselves. A familiar captivity, said C.S. Lewis, is frequently more desirable than an unfamiliar freedom. I suspect it's the point that Jesus keeps trying to make, that the opportunity we have to, to be freely ourselves, to freely use our gifts, to freely invest our talents, to freely answer the bell, to freely join the cause, the opportunity is always in front of us. The tide is always high. The current is always serving, but we have managed to lock ourselves away, play it safe, bury the talent, imprison ourselves in familiar confines. No surprise that when Jesus began his ministry, some of the first words out of his mouth were, I have come to proclaim release to the captives. In the Bible, it seems that just about every visitor from heaven, when they open their mouths, they first say these words, fear not. And you know what fear does most? What fear does most is it convinces us slyly convinces us that now is not the time. Now is not the time. Now is not the season. Now is not convenient. Fear keeps us from even tapping on the jail door to see whether or not it's open. It's kind of like Otis Campbell in the Andy Griffith show. I date myself when I bring up Otis Campbell on the Andy Griffith Show. You may remember Otis, he was the town drunk, and whenever he got onto a bender, he would make his way over to the sheriff's office, and he would take the key off the nail on the wall, and he would let himself into the jail cell. And because the nail for the key was close enough, he would then reach through the bars and put the key back on the wall. And then when he had slept it off, he would reach back through the bars and grab the key and let himself out. And the key was always within reach. Always. And I suppose that's what Jesus keeps trying to say, that the time is now and the key is right there. The imprisonment of our souls, our gifts, our talents, our treasures, our passions is just one reach away from liberation. Frederick Douglass, the great 19th century African-American former and runaway slave, said once for a long time, I prayed for freedom, but finally there came the time that my prayers made it to my legs and I ran. The time is at hand, Jesus said. You know, I've not met one person in this world who thinks there is nothing in this world that needs fixing. I've yet to meet anybody who has said to me, you know, I think the world's kind of perfect. It's all working good. No hunger, no injustice, no greed, no war, no lying, no cheating, no stealing. I haven't found a human being ever who thinks that. Neither have I found a human being who doesn't have some kind of gift to answer it. And I suspect that's why Jesus formed the church, the group of human beings who know that they were created in the image of God, that they have been endowed with great gifts to make the world into a different place, and they are striving. We are called to strive, to reach for the key, to set ourselves 
free. I was afraid, said the one sure bet talent servant. I said to myself, mm, now is not the time. Story is told of the time when Satan once called together the emissaries of hell. And he told them that he wanted to send one of them to earth to wreak havoc upon the souls of men and women. And he asked who would volunteer to ruin the souls of the human race. And one creature came forward and said, I will go. And Satan said, if I send you, what will you tell the children of the earth that will cause the ruination of their souls? And the creature said, I will tell the children of earth that there is no heaven. And Satan said, they won't believe you. For within every human heart, there is a hope that heaven is their home and that grace will have the victory. You may not go. Then came forth another creature, darker and more foul than the first. And Satan said, if I send you, what will you tell the children of the earth to ruin their soul? And the creature said, I will tell them that there is no hell. And Satan looked at him and said, oh, no, they won't believe you either. For within every human heart there is a conscience, an inner voice that testifies that not only that good will triumph, but that evil will someday be defeated. No, you may not go. And then one last creature came forward, this one from the darkest place of all, and Satan said to him, If I send you, what will you tell the people of the earth that will lead to the demise of their souls? And the creature said, I will tell them that there is no hurry. And Satan said, go.